It is actually reported and that there is sexual immor immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of the, your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without, without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral, immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world, but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Well, I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer, and then we're going to look at God's word. Father, we thank you that uh, we can know that truth, that uh, Jesus loves us, and we know because your word tells us so. Uh, we thank you, Father God, that uh, your word uh, speaks to us encouragement and also challenge. And we pray that as we consider your word now, that you would, by your spirit, give us open minds and teachable wills. And we pray that we would be changed and shaped in our thinking and our living as we consider what you have to say to us today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in an ordinary, average-sized suburban church in Sydney, at uh, one particular point in time, there were multiple church members who were involved in committing adultery with each other. Uh, each of them were long-term um, well-known, regular, uh, committed members of the congregation and the affairs, as we sometimes like to call adultery, uh, the affairs were well-known amongst the congregation. One of the church leaders was asked, what action is being taken to change this situation? And he simply said, 
we are trying to love them through it. It turned out that no action had been taken to challenge any of the people who were committing adultery. And the Lord's Supper had been celebrated regularly during this period of time. And everybody, everybody including the known adulterers, were being offered the Lord's Supper and participating. Church life was humming along pretty much business as usual. I didn't make that story up. That's a true story. And I wonder what you think about it. Um, should someone have done something uh, to change this situation or was the church pretty much on track in terms of their uh, view of uh, just not confronting, not dealing, just loving people through that time? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which you might care to have open on page 808, the Apostle Paul addresses a case of sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. And as we look at this passage this morning, what we'll see is that there are in fact two key problems in the church. The first problem is the behaviour of the man in question. Let's have a look at that. We see it in verses 1 and 2, or verse 1. It is actually reported that there is, a sexual, there, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now, Paul uh, doesn't spell out the details. Apparently, he probably didn't need to. It was well known. The Corinthians knew what was going on. A man has his father's wife. Uh, in Jewish circles, that would mean that the man was sleeping with his stepmother. Now, Paul only speaks about the man. He doesn't say anything about the woman. And so perhaps it's the case that his stepmother was not a member of the church. Uh, she was not someone who professed to be a Christian. What this man was doing was not even accepted by the pagans, by the non-Christians. Uh, not only was he sinning sexually, but he was doing so with his father's wife, with his stepmother. That's problem number one. But it's not the only problem in the church. There was a second problem as well, and the second problem is the attitude of the church. Verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Uh, what is their attitude? They were, what does it say? They were proud. They were proud. You see, it's not just that they accepted what was going on. Uh, they were proud about it. They actually boasted about it. That sounds astonishing, doesn't it? But yet, um, friends, the same thing is happening in churches today. There are churches which literally boast that they accept all kinds of sexual relationships as being equally valid perfectly okay, especially sex outside of marriage. That's the least of the issues. 
And they think that they are being tolerant, that they are being loving, that they are being progressive. Progressive? Well, they're not progressive at all. The Corinthian church thought the same thing, and that was 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Things haven't changed. The Corinthian church ought not to have been proud. Instead, they should have been filled with grief. You see, the proud person is the person who feels puffed up. Uh, The grieving person is the person who feels empty. And that's how the church should have felt. Sexual immorality in the church is not something to brag about. But neither is sweeping it under the carpet. And that's what the church that I mentioned in my opening remarks was doing. Uh, They weren't necessarily proud about it. Uh, They didn't go and stick a sign outside of their church and saying, you know, that we accept all kind of sexual relationships here as being perfectly okay and fine and valid. I have actually seen a sign outside a church that said something like that. They didn't do that. They didn't think it was right, but they didn't think that they should do anything about it either. In verses 2 through to 5, though, serious action was required in Corinth. Now, what should they have already have done? Verse 2. In verse 2, Paul says that they should have already have put that man outside of their fellowship. Do you see that? Have they done that yet? No. And so Paul now tells them what they now must do. Verse 3. Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. It goes on to say, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the present of our Lord, power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Now you might remember from last week that apparently that there were a number of arrogant people in the church who kind of took advantage of the fact that Paul was not physically present, that he was a long way away, that he was in Ephesus. Um, But here Paul says, no, that doesn't actually make any difference. Uh, In verses 3 and 4, they should act just as if Paul were present with them. And Paul tells them that when the church is gathered, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we are doing so here today, that they should hand that man over to Satan, which in verse 2 means to put the man out of their fellowship. The man is no longer to be treated as being a member of the church. Now, how does that sound to you? Some people I know in the past have thought that This kind of thing sounds a little bit harsh. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that Paul had uh, been the minister of the church in Corinth for one and a half years. He had been their regular preacher and teacher. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having Paul as, uh, uh, you know, preaching and teaching you the word of God uh, for a year and a half? And it sounds like Paul has already done some teaching on this for them. 
because he says, ought you not already have put the man out of your fellowship? They should have known what they should have done. And so the passage isn't necessarily to be interpreted just in a vacuum. Indeed, for us, uh, we can look at this passage in the context of other passages in the Bible that help us to know what to do and how to do it when a person is caught in a particular sin. Uh, one of those passages is Matthew chapter 18. I wonder if you might uh, put a bookmark in 1 Corinthians 5 and just come with me briefly to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read a few verses from verse 15 through to verse 17. It's on page 695. This is what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, uh, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's a slightly different situation because Jesus here is addressing a situation where one brother you know, sins or you know, does something to offend another brother. So it's not the same as a situation where one person is sinning and is then approached by a brother. But it seems that the principles here are the same and can be equally applied uh, in situations such as the one in 1 Corinthians 5 of adultery or the one in the church I mentioned. What we see here is that there are three steps. Firstly, in verse 15, somebody approaches the person individually. They gently raise the matter in a spirit of love, in a spirit of knowing that they themselves too could be fallible to sin. But they point out that what the person is doing is contrary to the will of God. Now, the best outcome of that kind of conversation is this that the person admits, yes, that what they are doing is wrong, that they are actually grieved about that, that they are happy to receive help, and they repent of their sinful way. With sexual sin, that will always involve a difficult process of restoration of relationships. But that process has commenced. And because they have repented, forgiveness... Reconciliation uh, are now on the table and the matter has been kept as private as possible. Now in my experience, this first step usually does the trick. Uh, many people who are caught in serious sin are actually quite almost relieved uh, when the matter is drawn to their attention and that they can be helped out of it. But what if the person rejects the approach? What if they say, look, butt out. This is none of your business. This is nobody's, this is a private matter. It's between me and the person. It's none of your business. Well, what if they just don't want to repent of their adultery? 
Is that the end of the matter? Do you then say, okay, that's fine, no dramas? No. Uh, in verse 16, step two is that the person is approached again. But this time, they're approached with one or two other people who can act as witnesses to what's going on and what the person's response is. In so doing, it uh, reinforces the point that the matter is actually a serious matter. Now, the person may be uh, open to listen if it is more than just one person who's saying, hey, you're, you've gone off track, especially if the other people are people who are respected. But again, what if the person still says, I know what God's word says about, in this case, adultery. I know what God wants, but I know what I want, and I'm going to do what I want. What if that is the response? Is that okay? Do you say, right, fine, we tried, we'll just leave it at that? No. Have a look at verse 17. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. At this point, the whole church is brought in on the situation. The whole church is made aware of what's going on. And I guess that's got several implications. <clears throat> it does mean that, that people then have a clarity in terms that they understand what's actually happening there. Uh, they may have heard on the grapevine, they might have heard misinformation, but that can be clarified. It means that there are more people who can actually be praying for that person and more people who can take up opportunities to challenge that person to repent. But mind you, <clears throat> Uh, if a person has rejected all previous approaches, then by this stage they are a person who is actually quite committed to what they're doing and unwilling to repent. If they do repent, they find forgiveness. And that happens. Uh, someone was telling me after the uh, last service of exactly this situation in the church where he'd been involved in. A person was... Uh, was spoken to, spoken about to the whole congregation and it was told what the person had been doing and that they'd been excommunicated from the church. And several months later, in, in humility and repentance, the person came back to God and uh, was readmitted into the fellowship of the church. You see, if a person has been given every reasonable chance to repent but they still refuse. The church has only got, only got uh, two options. Option one is to say, okay, um, we just accept you as a true member of the church. You know, we're in fellowship with you. Even though you are living in a sexual relationship which is abhorrent to God and you've got no intention of changing, you're one of us, so please feel free, feel welcome just to fellowship with us as you always have. That's one option. The other option is to say, since you have chosen to live in deliberate, high-handed, unrepented rebellion against God's word, 
you've actually stepped outside of his church. You actually can't be a member of God's church. Two options, but the only right option is the second option, is to put the person outside of the fellowship. And Paul is not, he's not only talking about the Sunday services. Uh, have a look in verse, verse 11, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 5. In verse 11, uh, in verses 9 through to uh, 13, he has to deal with an issue. He's written to them once before and he's told them uh, not to associate with certain types of people. But he clarifies, it says, look, I'm not talking about non-Christians here. I'm not talking about people who don't even pretend to be Christians. Of course, you've got to associate with everyone. Otherwise, you'd have to withdraw from the whole world. But in verse 11, he says, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. You see, immorality is not the only reason for, uh, for discipline. Greed, idolatry, drunkenness, they're all included here too. But sexual immorality was the specific case in point. And so it's fairly clear, isn't it? Uh, the separation doesn't just involve Sunday. Uh, it is a relational separation as well. I heard of a situation where a person had been uh, this, this process had been gone through with a person who was committing adultery and it was finally got to the congregational level and the congregation was advised of this matter that the person was no longer part of the church because of unrepented sin and then there were some congregation members who were just happily fellowshipping with the person going out to dinner with them with the person and the person's partner uh, as if everything was hunky-dory now Paul says here that uh, not even to eat with such a person. Now, there's two reasons why this man should be put out from the fellowship or handed over to Satan. Firstly, in verse 5, it is for his own good. You see that? Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You see, if the person is allowed to just stay in the congregation, just business as usual, just accepting their lifestyle, accepting the fact that they, don't, they haven't repented, then they're never going to see any need to repent. It sends out the signal to the person that what you're doing is fine in the sight of God. And if they don't repent, then they'll face the judgment of God. That's not loving. However, if the seriousness of the seriousness of their sin is made clear and they then follow their sinful ways outside of the fellowship of the church there's no guarantees here but it's just possible that in like in the case i just mentioned that over time as they experience the bitter fruit of their sinful ways that they will come to the painful realisation that God's ways are actually right and what they've been doing is wrong and they, in humility, will turn back to God, seeking his forgiveness. And in due time, 
there is that opportunity then to be restored into the fellowship of the church. And when that happens, it's beautiful. It means that uh, holiness has been consolidated and the person's faith has been actually uh, strengthened and, and changed and their relationship with the congregation uh, is wonderful. Uh, far better for that to happen. You see, adultery always ends in tears. Always. No, make no mistake about that. It always ends in tears. And if this person just won't listen to godly admonition from people within the church, if they won't listen to the church itself, then they just have to learn the hard way outside of the fellowship of the church. Um, a little bit like the prodigal son. It's for their own good. But secondly, it's also for the good of the church. Now, uh, here, Paul um, speaks about, um, about dough and bread and yeast. Uh, it's not just a digression. Uh, there's a point to what Paul is saying. Let me say, firstly, I have never baked a loaf of bread in my life. Some of you bake bread, is that right? And you're going to tell me afterwards why what I'm saying now is not strictly correct. All right, I'm happy about that. But let me have a go at it. As I understand it, yeast is a fungus. All right? I Google searched yeast and told me it was a fungus. All right? Yeast is a fungus. And it's a fungus which kind of comes to life when you add warm water to it. Right? And so that's what they do with, with yeast. They add warm water to it and they, then it's mixed in with the flour and it thrives. It grows, it multiplies, it reproduces itself it, and it spreads through the whole batch of dough because it's a living organism. And it's what causes the bread to rise when it's baked. Now, what's the relevance of this? Well, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Unrepented, sinful behaviour, unchecked, can spread through a church like yeast through a batch of dough. I mean, that church I mentioned in my opening remarks, um, do you think that those multiple adulterous relationships all just happened suddenly, all at once? Uh, do you think that before then, the, you know, church was just holy and pure and, you know, there was no sexual sin in the church at all, then suddenly, humph, you know? whole stack of people all committing adultery? You, you reckon that's how it happened? Not likely. Chances are that there was one sexually immoral relationship which was allowed to go unchallenged, unchecked. And then, well, if they can do it, then why can't someone else do it? And if those people can do it, why can't someone else do it? And if, you know, you've got three or four adult couples within the church all committing adultery with each other, 
then the young people in the church, if there's any young people in the church, you'll look at that and what are they going to see? Well, that's the standard of morality. That's what's accepted. And it thrives, it grows. It's like yeast just growing through a whole batch of dough. Another thing about yeast, again, I'm happy to be corrected by the bakers amongst us, but uh, understand that in the ancient world, uh, and it might be true now, I don't know, but in the ancient world at least, uh, when they um, baked bread, they didn't bake all of the dough. They would take some of the dough that had the yeast in it and they would set it aside for the next time that they went to, uh, to bake bread. And the next time they'd bake bread, they would take that old yeast and they would add water and add flour to it and the fungus would grow and spread throughout the new batch of dough and then they'd take a little bit of that, put that aside, but they'd then go and bake the rest. And the next time they're going to bake some bread, they'd take that yeast, that they'd set, that dough that they'd set aside they then add flour and water to that and the fungus would grow and, and so on. So it's a perpetual uh, sort of situation. But if the old yeast somehow became infected, they wouldn't have understood infection, but if it had you know, gone off and they'd figured that when it, that happens it's harmful for human consumption, then what would they do with the old batch of dough with the yeast in it? They'd turf it. They'd throw it away. Now, hold that thought. Think about the time when the Israelites uh, were released from slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Just before the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, they celebrated a meal together, didn't they? Anyone tell me what the meal was? What was it called? The Passover meal, where a, a, a lamb was sacrificed and the blood from that lamb was painted over the doorposts of the houses of the Israelite people. And when the Spirit of God came over in judgment to judge the land of Egypt, it would pass over those households that were covered in the blood of the lamb. Well, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, at the time of the Passover, they also celebrated the feast of unleavened bread. What's unleavened bread? It's bread without yeast. It's like, you know, Lebanese bread? I think that's, that's pretty much what it is. It's Lebanese bread, you know, the flat bread that hasn't risen, it hasn't risen because it doesn't have any yeast in it. Now, at the time of the Exodus... For seven days, the Israelites were to eat bread without yeast, unleavened bread. Why? What did that symbolise? It symbolised the fact that, it, that they were about to make a fresh start, that the old yeast of their life in Egypt, in slavery to the Egyptians, that was over, that they were about to commence a new life a life heading towards the promised land. Now, when you think about that background, it makes sense of what Paul says in verses 7 through to 9. Take a look at that. Verse 7. 
He says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the yeast of sincerity and truth. It's symbolic what he's saying there. But what he's getting at is this. Why should willful, unrepented sin not be accepted in the church? Answer, because that is the infected uh, yeast of our old life. It's time to get rid of it. It's time to start fresh. Because in verse 7, Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ's blood was shed on the cross. Christ was sacrificed to pay for sin. And why did he do that? Well, it's so that the judgment of God could pass over us. It's so that we could be saved, but more than that, it's so that we, uh, the saved people of God, the church, can become God's new people, a new creation, a new society. Now, none of us uh, is free from sin. But because of what Jesus has done, because of the forgiveness that comes through the gospel, uh, we, all of us, ought to be struggling against sin in our lives. We ought to be people who are committed to repentance, committed to changing, committed to putting, getting rid of the old yeast in our own lives, committed to a fresh start, committed to being holy, people who are different from our world, people who are set apart to honour God. We ought to be struggling to be like that, individually and as a church. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a portion of God's word that some Christians really struggle with. And uh, it's one of the advantages, as Peter mentioned, of us just working our way through whole books of the Bible because it means we just don't pass over things that we don't like. We deal with the parts of the scriptures that we struggle with. And sometimes they're the best parts to, to deal with because when we're struggling with a part of scripture, it's not scripture that needs to change, it's us that needs to change. We struggle with this portion of God's word and you can understand why. I mean, you know, we work so hard to draw people into the church. And here's a passage that seems to be saying that we should ask someone to leave the church. Uh, we live in a society which, which values tolerance. A passage like this makes us look intolerant, unloving. And sometimes I've heard people say, what will the non-Christians think about us? Well, we know what the non-Christians will think about us. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's important to understand that uh, this is the end point of a process of church discipline which is loving, which is fair. One of the reasons that we feel uncomfortable with church discipline is because, quite frankly, 
in many churches it is not taught and it is certainly not put into practice. There are some churches that put it into practice too much in a really abusive way. Uh, That's not what Paul's on about here. But by and large, it's not taught and it's not practised. Instead, over the years, over the decades, churches have swept sexual immorality under the carpet. Sex before marriage adultery, and sin which even our non-Christian society deplores. And non-Christians look at the churches, these things become public, public knowledge. And Non-Christians look at the church and they say, there you go, bunch of hypocrites. They preach one thing, but they allow sexual sin to be rife amongst them. That's what our world thinks when we don't deal with sexual sin. But when we deal with sexual sin seriously, there are some non-Christians who take notice and they see that we're different. I don't know if you saw or read about this situation just recently, but there was a church in Sydney a gospel-centred church which has been in the news over this sort of matter. Allegedly, a man in the church was repeatedly uh, involved in inappropriate sexual behaviour towards women in the church. And he was spoken to uh, by uh, leaders in the church He was challenged to uh, reconsider his position and to change his behaviour, but he did not repent. He was repeatedly challenged, and each time with an increasing degree of intensity. But it was to no avail. Finally, he was asked to leave the church, told that, Unless he repents, he's not welcome in their fellowship. The reason that uh, was in the news was because the man decided to take the church church leaders to court, uh, alleging that they had defamed his, uh, his good name by doing this. Now, of course, by taking the matter to the Supreme Court of New South Wales, where they have court reporters... Uh, what they had been saying he'd been doing is now reported all over the internet. You can read about it anywhere in the world. The whole world knows. But think about the differences between these two churches, the church I started with and this particular church in the news at the moment. The church I mentioned at the beginning of my talk was a church that swept sin under the carpet They kind of just hoped that it would go away. But here's a church which actually deals with sin. Here's a church which cares about sin, which cares about God's holiness, 
a church that actually cares about the well-being of the other people in the church. Which one of the two do you think honours God? Which church do you think would be most helpful to a non-Christian who came along seeking after God, seeking something which is different to the world? Which church would you prefer your children to grow up in? Which church would you prefer to be a member of? Which church do you think would you rather be a part of even if you should be caught, uh, caught up in sexual sin? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word uh, teaches us and cor corrects us and rebukes us and uh, trains us in righteousness. Uh, Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has dealt with sin on the cross through our Passover lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be a people who get rid of that old contaminated yeast, that we would be people who value holiness, purity, righteousness, that we would be people who are committed to repentance so that we would honour you and that we would be a light to those around. Father, we pray that uh, we would care enough about one another that when we see each other perhaps caught in a sin, that we would have the love uh, to, uh, to approach each other, to challenge each other, so that we might be given that opportunity to repent. Father, we pray that we would um, live under the authority of your word in this matter. In Jesus' name, amen.